Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. My Bible's open to Romans chapter 1. Our text we'll read in a moment is verses 18 through 23. Now the subject of God's wrath is an unpopular one in our culture. I don't think I need to tell you that. One of the reasons that I am devoted to verse-by-verse preaching through entire books of the Bible is that it doesn't allow the preacher to cherry-pick topics that he knows everyone is going to be pleased with. Because sometimes we need to hear hard things. And as pastors, we should never enjoy preaching on the wrath of God. Spurgeon said that we should never preach on the wrath of God without a tear in an eye. The title of uh, the message today, The Just Wrath of God. For the last two weeks, we have studied Paul's introduction to this wonderful epistle, the theme we said of which is justification by faith. Remember that Paul did not establish the church at Rome. In fact, so far as we know, he had never met any of these believers But he had heard of their good reputation, we saw last week, for faithfulness. And he expresses his prayerfulness for them, specifically that God would make it possible in the near future for him to travel to Rome, that he could mutually encourage them as they would encourage him. Paul declared that he intended to preach the gospel boldly when he came to Rome, as he had in every place the Lord had sent him so far. And he stayed, the reason that he was so keen to preach the gospel is that he had seen its power to save. That for those who are being saved is the power of God and salvation. In fact, he made a bold declaration. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I think what he meant by that is that he didn't fear a negative response to it. Paul was not delusional. He had been chased out of many a town for preaching the gospel. He knew that some people would receive it and some people would reject it. But for those who received it, It was so powerful and so life-changing that he was willing to risk it. So now beginning in verse 18, here in chapter 1, we have the first major section of the letter following the introduction. This section goes from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. And in this section, Paul brings an indictment against all of humanity. Paul is like a lawyer laying out his case before the court. And he's indicting all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, as all guilty before a holy God. And what he's doing, he's showing why we need a savior, why God's salvation is so glorious. And he declares beginning in verse 18 that God is rightly, hear this, God is rightly and justly declaring his fixed anger towards the sinfulness of men all the time. And so beginning verse 18, let's read the text. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. And for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened and professing to be wise, they became fools. 
and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men, of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading of his word. So he starts out with this transitional word, for, which means because or for this reason. Paul has just said that he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's ready to preach it boldly in Rome. And the reason is that all humanity needs to hear it. All human beings need salvation because all of us are lost rebels, enemies of God. So our first point this morning is the reality of God's wrath. Verse 18 again, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is a real thing. Now, I have a blessing of having one of my best friends be a PhD and a Greek professor at a Baptist college. And so almost every week I call him to ask his opinion on certain Greek words in the text. And I was looking at this word, the wrath of God, and, and the fact that it is revealed. And he verified what I suspected is that's not something in the future. It's not something in the past. It's a present ongoing activity. That is, God is angry with sin all the time. And that's the kind of wrath he's talking about. Now, there's a wrath that the book of Revelation speaks of that is yet in the future where God finally pours out his wrath on humanity. But there's an ongoing kind of anger against sin from day to day. That's what he's talking about here. So let's define what he means here by God's wrath. Well, David Schrock defines God's wrath this way. He says, it's the holy action of retributive justice. That means punishment towards persons whose actions deserve eternal condemnation. The holy action of retributive justice towards persons whose actions deserve eternal condemnation. Do you find it interesting that the Apostle Paul begins his treatise on justification by faith with the concept of wrath rather than love? He's anxious not primarily to tell people how much God loves them, but to tell them that the wrath of God was upon them for their sin. Now, Paul, I suspect, would have been quickly corrected by many of the modern personal evangelism technicians today. <laughs> they would probably say, Paul, you can't lead with God's wrath. You'll offend people and, and drive them away. Well, Paul knew that, and Paul was in good company. You remember we said last week that Paul viewed himself as one in a long line of God's chosen vessels called to declare his message to the people. And Paul's message was consistent to all sinners through both testaments of the Bible. And that is, God is angry against sin all the time. Now, we could read that in nearly every book of the Bible. I've just chosen three passages, for example. Jeremiah 10.10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. Nahum 1.6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. Isaiah 13.9, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. How many times have you heard well-meaning Christians say, our God is a God of love, not of anger? Well, friends, the God of the Bible is also a God of anger. 
Yes, he's a God of love, but he's angry against sin all the time. Now, there was a day in our own country that the just wrath of God was something that was a common subject in evangelical pulpits. For example, during the Great Awakening, which was a time of unprecedented and unparalleled revival in this country, pastors warned sinners regularly against the reality of hell and God's wrath against sin. But over time, due to the influence of liberal theologians, preaching on God's wrath has fallen out of favor and has been replaced by self-help seminars and shallow platitudes of today's pulpits. Almost all quote-unquote preaching in many evangelical pulpits today is something like this. How humans can deal with the stressful workaday world. In other words, it becomes man-centered rather than God-centered. And it's all about how my life can be more comfortable. There's rarely, if ever, any mention of sin. Rarely, if any, mention of God's holy inherent righteousness. And certainly, no mention of our subject today, God's wrath. Well, that shouldn't surprise us. The Apostle Paul, when he gave Timothy his charge, said, preach the word in season, out of season, because there's coming a day when men will not endure sound doctrine. And what they'll do is to heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. That is, they want someone to scratch them behind the ears and tell them what they want to do. It was true in the Old Testament, it's true today. Do you know what... By and large, the reaction to prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Nahum was, the people stopped their ears and said, prophesy to us smooth things. (laughs) Tell us things that are easy to hear. And the result is what one theologian, Richard Niebuhr, famously described. This is the result. Today we have a God without wrath brought to men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross, end quote. But dear ones, God has not changed. He is eternal and immutable, and so is his word. And men and women today may think they have grown too sophisticated for a message about God's wrath, but man is the same sinner he has always been. The reality of God's wrath goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God had created a perfect environment for his highest creature, man, given him a helpmate, gave him lots of freedom, gave him a reason for living, gave him one prohibition. He was not to eat of this tree that was in the midst of the garden. And he said this, in the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. But man ate anyway. And that is far from the only example of God's wrath, even in the book of Genesis. Not long later, after man was kicked out of the garden, he began to go forth and multiply. The world became such a wicked place that God regretted that he'd even made man. And he sent a flood and destroyed all humanity save for one family, Noah and his descendants. And then again... One specific area, Sodom and Gomorrah, was destroyed by fire and brimstone for their great sinfulness. And yet, to hear preaching today or commentary on God's nature, one might conclude that uh, God has somehow undergone a makeover 
on the blank page between the Old and New Testament. Or perhaps he's hired a public relations firm to fix his image. He's no longer a God who hates and is angry at sin. He's a benevolent, doting grandfather shuffling about who couldn't harm a flea. But it's not just the Old Testament that verifies the reality of the existence of God's wrath. It's also in the New Testament. I told you the last Old Testament prophet was uh, John the Baptist. And he came in the power and spirit of Elijah and his message was one thing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. He preached God's coming wrath. Of course, it's not just John the Baptist, it's uh, none other than the Lord Jesus. John chapter 3, we love to uh, quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Well, just 20 verses later, this same Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John the Baptist affirmed the reality of God's wrath. Jesus Christ affirmed the reality of God's Wrath. Every prophet and every apostle sent by God affirmed the reality of God's wrath. In fact, Jesus had more to say about God's wrath and judgment than almost any other subject. And who are we to dismiss it out of hand in our claim of modern sophistication? Now, having established, I hope in your heart and mind, the reality of God's wrath, let's look now at the focus of God's wrath. Verse 18 again, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now you'll notice that the wrath of God comes from somewhere. He says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And I think he says that so that people can make absolutely sure when judgment falls that God is the one who did it. Now, sometimes today, preachers seem to want to help God off of the hook or help him extradite himself from the corner he's backed himself in with all this talk about wrath. And so when things happen in the world, and as they often do, tragedies, earthquakes, floods, um, oftentimes pastors and theologians have said, where was God in all of this? And in an attempt to extricate himself from this sticky wicket, They'll say, as I heard one pastor say, God was just as surprised by this earthquake as you were. That's not a God I want to serve. I don't know about you. Who's surprised by the earthquake? Now, we have to be careful about saying foolish things like I've heard some TV preachers say that earthquake was for that person's sin or this person's sin. The point Paul is making is that God is angry against all sin all the time. And anytime there's tragedy... We can't dismiss God's participation in that. And the way we say it here is that God is so sovereign that whatever happens, either he allowed it or he caused it. But we do need to make room for the possibility when tragedy falls that God caused that. Look what he says. This wrath is revealed from heaven against all, A-L-L, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Not just the ungodliness and unrighteousness we find particularly repugnant, our own sin. And one leads to the other. Ungodliness, I believe, is the failure to recognize God's authority in our lives. 
That is irreverence, impiety. And when we don't recognize God's sovereign authority in our lives as his created beings, that leads to disobedience because of flippancy towards his commandments. And that is unrighteousness. So remember, there's two fundamental relationships in the world. There are horizontal relationships and, and vertical relationships. If the relationships between ourselves and heaven is not right, we can't hope to have right relationships with other people. So we're going to treat them unrighteously. We see this in Exodus chapter 20 in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. We talk about two tables of the law, right? The first portion of the law has to do with our piety, our reverence, our attitude towards God. The first two laws have to do with prohibitions against idolatry and making false image. And, and we hear about um, not taking the Lord's name in vain. So he establishes we have to have a right heart attitude towards God. And then the second table of the law has to do with how we relate to other people. We're not to lie to one another. We're not to kill one another, obviously. We're not to commit adultery. We're not to covet what is our neighbor's. And so this is all he's saying here, I think. He, he covers the whole gamut of sin from sins between ourselves and God and then how that plays out in unrighteous behavior towards other people because irreverence towards God will certainly lead to unrighteous behavior between people. And so let me sum it all up again. God is angry at sin all the time. Now, I don't know what image is evoked in your mind when I talk about God is angry against sin all the time. Maybe you had an experience in your home where your father had a volcanic temper and you had to walk on eggshells all the time and if you spilled the milk, he was going to lash out and you never knew where it was coming from, so your head was on a swivel. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. When we talk about God's anger, we're talking about a fixed disposition, consistent all the time. Now, that's hard for us to gather and, and get our brain around because we don't know anyone like that. Now, we know people who have anger problems, right? They can't control themselves. That's not, this is not a problem God has. This is his attribute. He has a fixed disposition against, anger, uh, against sin all the time. Um, he's not like us, though, in his anger. He's not temperamental and capricious. He doesn't change like the wind. I, I am. I, I'm capricious with my anger. Sometimes there are things that will make me angry that a week before I laughed at, right? We're inconsistent. And, and, and one of the things that is a challenge to parents is how can you stay focused and make sure your kids understand their need to obey when your attitude towards their sin fluctuates. And for example, um, if you've had a, a particularly difficult day at work and your child says something sort of snarky, you may fly off the handle and punish them. And then the next week when things have gone great at work and you got off early and got a raise and the kid says something snarky, you laugh and say, you have my sense of humor. See what I'm saying? We're inconsistent towards even our own sin and, and those that we love. Not, God's not like that. He has a fixed disposition. He is angry against all sin all the time. And beloved, I believe this is the main point of this entire section of Scripture. The wrath of God, hear this, is just. Just. 
the wrath of God is just. Is that always true of human anger? No, there is such thing as righteous indignation. There are certain things we ought to be angry about. We know that anger is not inherently sinful. Why? Because Jesus got angry. Chased the money changers out of the temple because they were making a place that was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, a den of robbers. But almost always, in my own experience, the things that make me angry are not the things that make God angry. They're when my rights and comfort are threatened or violated in some way. That's not righteous indignation. God's anger is right and just and appropriate. What I'm saying is that God's fixed disposition of being angry towards all sin all the time is the right and proper response to sin. And that's why the title of the message today is the just wrath of God. Just means right and appropriate. And our third point, the justice of God's wrath. Now let's read the rest of the text. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Note that phrase. They are without excuse. What is the antecedent of that pronoun they? All men everywhere. That there's not a person on planet earth who is excused because of their sin. Can't give a doctor's note. <laughs> Can't have some reason that God would take for, for our sin. All men are without excuse. And I hear people say it all the time. What about that person? That innocent person? That aborigine? who never heard. Is he innocent? No, he's not innocent. Now, the Bible talks about degrees of punishment based on the light that we have received. Uh, do you remember what Jesus says? Woe to Bethsaida, woe to Chorazin. If the signs and wonders he had done had been done entire inside, and they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. There's, there's a degree, but there's no innocent person. Maybe you have that notion that there's someone in the world who is innocent. No, they're not. They're not, according to the word of God, because the Bible says that God's just wrath against sin is, is right and just and appropriate. I'm going to give you seven reasons why that's true. Write these down. Seven reasons why God's wrath is right and appropriate and just. Number one is because all men suppress the truth. He says, wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And really, if you want to summarize all sins that make God angry, this is it. We suppress the truth we know about God in our sinfulness. To suppress means to push down, to hold down, to keep back. See, we are born with the knowledge of God. There's a great debate that goes on in psychological and philosophical circles, particularly at the freshman college level. The question you likely were confronted with if you took Gen Psych or Introduction to Philosophy is what is the nature of man, right? And there are several choices that are laid out. Man is inherently good, or man is neutral, he's a blank slate, and is the result of his environment over time, or, or what? He's what the Bible says, a sinner by nature. Now, those are basically your three choices. 
But man is not without light. I've never had to convince any of my small children the existence of God. Never had to have a debate with them about that. But what happens over time is we become more sophisticated, we think, and, and more intelligent. We lose our need for God, and so we suppress what we know inherently about God down, and God's angry about that. Secondly, second reason we deserve God's wrath is his internal witness. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So if you have a person that says, I am an atheist, I don't believe there's a God. I don't know very many of those people. I know more who would say they were ag agnostic. I'm unsure. There's not enough evidence for me to make a decision of God's existence or not. Well, an agnostic's incredibly arrogant. He's blaming God for his rebellion. He's saying, uh, it's God's fault that I don't know if he exists or not. But the Bible says here that God has given an internal witness. That is, we're born with the knowledge of God. He goes on to say we're born with the law written on our heart. And I think what he speaks of here is the human conscience. The human conscience is that mechanism within every person that the scripture says either accuses us or verifies us, right? Tells us what we're doing is right or wrong. But when we suppress that conscience long enough, the Bible says that we can sear our conscience. We can scab it over. We can make it insensitive to that no longer functions as it's supposed to. And then our hearts will be darkened. And so it's not as if there's not any evidence. And, and by the way, he says this evidence is clear. It's not vague. It's not opaque. It's clear evidence that they willfully will not bow to. And by the way, the reason that men decline the God of the Bible is not because the evidence of him is not clear in their hearts and minds and in nature. It's because they hate the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible holds them accountable for their sin. And, and as one theologian says, it's not an intelligence problem, it's a moral problem. Understand that. So suppression of truth, the internal witness of God that they ignore. And thirdly, something we call natural revelation. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Notice again he's saying it's not vague, it's not opaque, it's clearly understood, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So theologians divide God's revelation of himself. To reveal means to make clear. We would know nothing about God had he not chosen to reveal it to us. Would you agree? So he's revealed himself to us primarily in two broad streams. One is what we call natural revelation or general revelation. It's called general because it's available to all humanity. Wherever you live, you're going to see the sunrise and the sunset. You're going to hear the birds singing. You're going to look at a plant leaf under the microscope and see its complexity. And, and every time... Forever since time immemorial, a human being looks at nature and observes through his five senses or her five senses, it is mute evidence, not only of the existence of God, but the scripture says of his divine power. We know we didn't make any of that. We know no other human being is capable of that kind of precision and power. 
And so what is the point? Because God has given us knowledge of him from birth, since he has revealed himself clearly through nature, through every molecule in human existence, since time immemorial, we are without excuse. That's what I mean when I say there's no innocent person who has their senses. For even though they knew God, verse 21 says, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they came futile in their reasoning and their senseless hearts was darkened. And, and now here is the natural progression of rebellion against God. Here is how God's wrath is revealed most often. We think of God's wrath as God shooting lightning bolts down from heaven or dropping anvils from space. He can do that. He has dropped huge hailstones, according to the Bible, and killed people. He's opened up the earth and swallowed people alive. That's one form of God's wrath. But most often, the way God's wrath is revealed in our world is giving men over to what they want. That is removing his intervention in their life and letting their sin go to its natural conclusion. And so since men suppress the truth, since they ignore the internal clear witness within them, their conscience, because they observe nature and don't see God or, or tell that that was God, what does he do? He condemns them for their failure to honor him. For even though, verse 21 says, they knew God, he was clearly seen to them. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. That is, they were irreverent and unholy and thankless. So those are fourth and fifth reasons that, God, that we deserve God's wrath. Our failure to honor him as God and our thanklessness, and they go hand in hand. How many times I've been watching a nature documentary on TV, and some scientist who's an expert in his field, whether it's marine biology or Molecular biology, they'll make some bold declaration about the incredible being before them and its incredible complexity that we don't even fathom what's going on. And they'll say, and this happened through sheer evolution. Not realizing how foolish that is. There, there's no other example on planet Earth of such complexity of design having observed it, that you would come to the conclusion that this just happened by chance over time. And that's why the Bible says, claiming to be wise, in verse 22, they became what? Fools. And that's not just intellectual fools. A lot of people who are moral fools, and that's what he's talking about here, moral fools, are incredibly intelligent. <laughs> they would wipe many of us off the page in an IQ test or a spelling contest. That's not what he's talking about here. But the conclusions they come to, having observed God's revelation in nature, is that it just happened. And they say that not because there's any scientific evidence for that, but because they hate God. Because if they admitted God did this, and if they admitted that God had put on their heart a knowledge of himself, and they admitted that the law of God was written on their hearts, then they would have to admit that God has the right as their creator to hold them accountable for their sin. They don't want that. So what do they do in response? Well, the sixth reason why we deserve God's wrath is because we express, rather than thanks and honor to God, pride 
and arrogance. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings, that is, their thinking became distorted, and their senseless hearts, that's the seat of their emotions and their thoughts, was darkened. They thought they were walking in the light, but the truth is, as Jesus claimed to the Pharisees, they were blind leaders of the blind. And what did they do? Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. That's the seventh point. They exchanged that of supreme value for the trivial and the worthless. So, so remember what you were taught in 10th grade biology about evolution if you went to public school, that life started as some single-cell organism in the swamp, and give enough time that that single cell organism mutated and, and sprung arms and a head and, and a tail and legs and swam up to the shore and eventually crawled out on the sand and lost his tail and his gills and grew some lungs and over millions of years stood upright and next thing you know he was a man. And so the idea is that man since then has been growing in sophistication ever since, including some would take it to the point of theological sophistication. The idea is that, that man was so ignorant in the past that he worshiped rocks and trees and uh, over time he started making idols to represent his gods and then he evolved upward and better today till we have three great monotheistic religions. Don't you believe it for a minute? It happened just the opposite way. Man started out in the Garden of Eden speaking to God face to face in the cool of the day. And from there, because he suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and he didn't want God's authority over him, he rebelled and was kicked out and man and his religion have been going like this ever since. Human history, I told you I'm a history major, is not an unbroken pattern of up and to the right. And what happens in every generation when technology increases is not that man becomes better, is that man becomes a more sophisticated killer. That's what he does. Because his heart has not been fundamentally exchanged. And so what does he do? Rather than enjoying the company of the Lord in the cool of the morning, he exchanges that which is of supreme value for the trivial and the worthless. In other words, most people in their rebellion don't become atheists and agnostics. A few do. He goes in the other direction. He becomes even more religious. But that which he worships is not the obvious creator. It's a God that he makes in his image. He says he makes images of corruptible mankind, that he's built statues that looks like him. And, and then he keeps going downhill until he's Worshipping birds and four-footed animals like cows and rats and monkeys and finally creepy crawly things, the King James says, bugs and insects and snakes. Brother Lawrence, you've been to India many times. This is not an exaggeration. This happens every day of the week somewhere in the world. And God doesn't ignore it. He has a fixed disposition of anger against man's sin all the time because he suppresses the truth. He ignores the clear witness of his conscience. 
He observes nature and concludes that God didn't do it. He fails to honor God. He's thankless for the benefits in his own life. He is prideful and arrogant, and ultimately he would rather have a God of his own making than the clear God of the Bible. The saying is, and it's very true, that in the beginning God created man and man in his image, and man has been trying to return the favor ever since. Man is trying to create a God that he can get along with, that doesn't hold him accountable for his sin. And friends, that's the bad news. And I've spent my entire sermon telling you the bad news because that's what Paul does in the letter of Romans. He's laying out his defense of the doctrine of justification by faith, but he knows if a person doesn't understand how bad the bad news is, the good news won't make any sense. You have to have that bad news behind it. You have to get a lost person lost before they can be saved. what, what implications does that have for our church here and our, and our lives here? Well, well, two, if you're saved and born again, it ought to make you thankful for your salvation. And what I'm thinking about is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Speaking of God's just wrath, he says, There is therefore now how much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're lost, the imp- implication is this. You need a Savior. You better run to Jesus. You better flee to the cross. You better despair of anything you've been trusting in up until this point that's not called Jesus. And you need to throw yourself at his court and plead for mercy. Don't ask for justice. I beg you, don't ask for justice when you stand before God. He is a just God, and that's why you don't want his justice, because he knows everything about you. He knows everything you ever said, done, and thought. And he has a fixed disposition against an anger against sin all the time. And what you need, friend, is not God's justice. You need his grace and his mercy. But fortunately for sinners like us, Paul says in Ephesians that salvation is by grace through faith. Not of works. It's a gift of God. Lest anyone should boast. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, this uh, first chapter of Romans is, is hard talks about things that uh, are rarely talked about in our culture anymore the one one time there it was and Lord you've been pleased in generations past to bring about awakening and revival through the clear teaching of your wrath and father that's my prayer that you do it again father our country needs a revival we need to be shaken loose of our complacency and our trajectory that we're on towards hell Jonathan Edwards said in his day, we are in a very tedious position like spiders dangling over hell, held up by one single gossamer thread. And Lord, as I look around our own culture today, I feel the same way. As a whole, we have rejected your divine revelation, not only in nature, but almost every American that I know has multiple copies of your special revelation, the Bible in their home, Lord. And and if the people of pagan cultures are without excuse, how much more so our own culture? Lord, it causes us to shudder. So Lord, I pray that you would bring about revival and awakening. Let it begin right here. Lord, make us thankful, those of us 
who've been rescued from certain wrath by your divine sovereignty and your grace. Give us a greater concern for our, our family members, friends, acquaintances. Father, help the gospel of the Lord Jesus to ever be on our lips and in our heart. God is the power of God to salvation for all who would believe. Help us like Paul not to be ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ this week. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.